Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore. One of the stories we promised to be on top of, and it's one of the stories we have been least on top of, at least compared to its relative importance, is the whole issue of climate change. We've been wanting for a long time to have a full-time climate change environmental journalist, and we don't yet, but this year we're really going to try to. But we're going to up our game in terms of doing climate change stories and try to unfold the debate about just how urgent is it and a debate about what to do about it. And when you look at the issue of climate change debate and discussion in the society as a whole, it's gone from in the 2000-2008 period of being on the front page of every newspaper and on the front page or as the main story on most television news shows for weeks to practically not being in the public discourse at all. And it's one of the things we're going to explore why and, and see what we can do about it. Uh, one of the issues has been a concerted campaign to discredit climate change science. And one has to believe, if one thinks, that the preponderance of scientists who believe that human industrious activity causes carbon emissions, which causes climate change crisis and global warming, if you believe that's all not true, you have to believe in one of the grandest conspiracies of our time. Um, but a lot of people do believe that, and we want to un try to unpack that as well. So in this episode, or series of interviews we're going to do on Reality Asserts Itself, we're going to meet a real live climate scientist, because you have to believe that he's in on this conspiracy if you believe that climate science is hokum. Um, so we're going to explore through the life of our guest how he came to a conclusion that, in fact, this is science as best he knows it. It is urgent, and we'll unpack all of this. So now, joining us in the studio is Alan Roebuck. Alan is a distinguished professor of meteorology in the Department of Environment Sciences at Rutgers University. He's editor of Review of Geophysics, the most widely read journal in the field. He was also on the faculty at the University of Maryland, where he served as a professor and state climatologist of Maryland from 91 to 97. He was a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was awarded a Nobel Prize in 2007. His current research focuses on geoengineering, climatic effects of nuclear weapons, soil moisture variations, the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate, and the impacts of climate change on human activities. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, as people that watch Reality Asserts Itself knows, we start with a personal biographical background of our guest, usually, and then we sort of get into the issues. And we're going to do that now through exploring Alan's life. We're going to also get into some of the issues he's trying to deal with in his scientific work. So l let's start from the beginning. Um, are you in on a grand conspiracy to delude the world and make money for corporate green corporations? This is the kind of stuff we read on the internet every time we do a climate change story. And we get it, you can see it from a right-wing position and a left-wing position. So we you are going to get into the more biography of, of, your, uh, of your life and get to know how you came to this conclusions through your own investigation. But just to kind of set a framing, what, what do you make of, of, of the, the extent of which this seems to have credibility in the society? I guess, I don't, I don't understand it. I, I guess people like to believe in conspiracies. But if my, my research supports the global global warming science, that humans are putting greenhouse gases, mainly carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. It causes warming. It's real. It's caused by us. All the scientists agree. It's bad. But I think there's hope. Mm 
Now, so that's based on evidence. You asked me if I believe in global warming. It's not a question of belief. It's a question of looking at the evidence and weighing the evidence. And I'm really a, a skeptic. I try to be critical of anything that's told to me and want to ask questions. And then I make conclusions based on the evidence. My motivation in my career would be to find a flaw in global warming, not another paper that supports it. Why? If you found a flaw, you'd be famous. You proved that it was wrong. That, that's what would give you fame, not another paper that supports the science. So there's a lot, of, a lot of motivation to be critical and find what's wrong with what people say, not another paper that supports it. Mm, that's interesting. There's certainly a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry that would encourage you if you could make such a discovery as well. Well, no, I don't get paid no, based on my results. No, I'm not saying you do. Results. I'm saying if, if one could find the flaw in climate science. So you're saying they're funding people to try and find the flaw. Well, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah, of research yeah. going on to find the flaw. Yeah. Okay, we're going to come back to how you came to these conclusions, mm -hmm. but I just wanted to kind of set the framing. Sure. And now let's go back. So you're born in 1949. Uh, tell us where and give us a sense of the household you grew up in. I was born in Boston in 1949. A few months later, we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. And my father was the chief economist for the Tennessee Valley Authority, and my brother and sister were born there. And when I was four years old, we moved to Brazil. I went to kindergarten in Rio de Janeiro and first grade in Fortaleza. My father worked for the United Nations there, helping to uh, the bank, the Banco do Nordeste in, in Fortaleza. Then we moved to Kansas City, Missouri, or Missouri, where I uh, went to third and fourth grade and moved to Prairie Village, Kansas for part of fourth grade. And then my mother said, we're moving again. I said, what? Uh, we just moved to this house. Yeah, your father got a job in New York. So we moved to Rye, New York, where I went to fifth and sixth grade. And then my father got a job as a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. And I went to junior high school and high school there. So talk a little bit about your father and mother's politics uh, and, <clears throat> and, and sort of your own political evolution, but everybody kind of starts with their parents because uh, that's where you, your first encounter these kinds of ideas. Well, my parents were traditional liberal Democrats. They supported Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey. My mother supported Jean McCarthy. She was a little bit more left-wing than my father, but I didn't really rebel against them at all. I, uh, that's what I learned, and that, that's what I became, although I always thought the Democrats were a little bit too conservative for my taste. Mm. And uh, wh when do you start to get a taste for science? Uh, as you're going through high school or even earlier, when, when, when do you feel like, boy, I'm good at this kind of stuff? I was always good at math and science in school, and so I had a little weather station out behind my house in, in Bloomington, and I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. When I was in ninth grade, I signed up for earth science, and the school counselor called me and said, you know, earth science is for the students who don't do well in science. You should be taking biology. Hmm. Okay, so I took biology. I didn't really find it that interesting, but then I took chemistry and physics in, in high school. I did well at that. When I got to Wisconsin, there was a freshman course in earth science, which I signed up for. And it was taught by the chairman of the meteorology department. And about a third of it was meteorology. And I'm not a weather weenie. Some people grow up loving weather from when they're really little. Well, you had, you had a weather station. Yeah, but I, I, I did other stuff too. I wasn't a weather weenie like the, our students now. And some people find it later. So I was a freshman and I was taking a course and a third of it was meteorology. We were plotting weather maps in Science Hall in Madison, it was a teletype and we were plotting the data and I did analysis and there was a warm front on the map. I looked out the window and there was this wedge of clouds on the horizon. I said, 
That's the warm front. I'm studying. I can study something that's real, that's relevant to humans, not something I have to imagine in a test tube or in an accelerator. And, that's, and I discovered I could major in meteorology. That was actually a subject, and they had a big, big department at Wisconsin. So that's when I became a meteorology major. This is when you're in college. Yeah. So at the, at, while you're in college, you're, this is in the 70s. This is no, a, in the six, late 60s. Late 60s, yeah. even, even more. Uh, this is the, at the height of the Vietnam War. Yes. So what does this do to your outlook of the world? Because to a large extent, this was a war led by the Democratic Party. Uh, I guess you could say that, yeah. Uh, well, Kennedy but, and Johnson. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so I wasn't really political at all. I didn't understand politics. I wasn't interested. But then I had to register for the draft when I turned 18. And I realized... What year is that? In 67, the end of 67. I started college when I was 17. So I was a, went for a year before I turned 18. And in Madison, if you turned 18, that meant you could go drink beer. That was a big deal. But you know, I also had to register for the draft. And I realized the government wanted me to go to Vietnam and kill people. And I didn't think that was a good idea at all. I, I didn't support the war, and I didn't support killing, and I didn't want to participate. And so, now, when I said Democratic Party led, you did a bit of a double take. Uh, I mean, in 68, when the government is telling you sign up to go to war to kill people, yeah. it's the Democratic Party telling you to do that. Now, I you grew up in a household that was very pro-Democratic Party. So in 1968, uh, there was, uh, you know, this was, Lyndon Johnson announced that he wasn't going to run for re-election because of the opposition to the Vietnam War. And so there was a campaign, and Gene McCarthy was running, Robert Kennedy was running, Richard Nixon came to Madison campaigning on the Republican Party, and I went out to the Dane County Memorial Coliseum to, to meet him, and, and I got, and I, he was there with Tricia, and I shook his hand, and I, and I, shook, and I said to him, do you support the military draft? Do you, uh, uh, he says, well, I support the Vice President's Commission report, which says you should draft uh, uh, younger people first. And I said, well, but, do you, but what about graduate students? Are you going to support a deferment for graduate students? And then this sort of big guy sort of picked me up and moved me along. Gene McCarthy campaigned there also, and the place was packed with 20,000 people. When Nixon came, it was only 2,000 people. So I was just wanting to learn about, about their different positions. And I supported, uh, I, I couldn't vote then. You couldn't vote till you were 21. So it wasn't an issue of who I was going to vote for. Uh, but uh, but the, all the politics came at us at but, the time. But the draft made it hit home. Yes. And to what extent does that now start radicalizing the way you look at the world? There were demonstrations against the war in Vietnam with tear gas. Dow Chemical Company was recruiting people. They made napalm, which was this jelly gasoline that the American military was dumping on Vietnamese people. And there was a protest. People were sitting in. The, the, the joke always, their, their advertising slogan was better living through chemistry. Yeah, it was always yeah. fill, filled with irony. <laughs> yeah. So the people were sitting in, in the building, and the, the campus police came in and said, move or we'll take you out. Well, you have two minutes. And then 30 seconds later, they came in and started beating people. And people outside started protesting, and they, they used tear gas. And I walked by there a little bit later, and my eyes started to water. That was the first time I had ever gotten tear gas. And I said, whoa. <laughs> and then there were marches on the street against the war. So I got experienced tear gas three out of the four years I was in Madison. But how, in, how involved did you get in the anti-war movement? I didn't lead any protests, but I, I participated in them. And my main concern was how do I avoid the draft? The draft was they would take you and require you to go in the Army. 
my senior year, they had a, the first draft lottery to calculate what order they would take people in. And my, my draft board was in uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, which was a pretty upscale uh, middle-class place, and they needed bodies. And so I knew that uh, my draft board was actually uh, attacked by the Berrigan brothers, spilling blood on it at one point. But so they determined what order they would. So I turned on the TV, and it wasn't on TV. So I turned on the radio, and they were doing the draft lottery, and they got they kept going on and on and on, and I didn't hear my birthday. But they had started at number 10. And they said they got to 150. I said, wow, that's great. So for those of you who tune in late, we're going to start over again from the beginning. Number one, September, my birthday is September 7th. Number one, September 22nd. Number six, September 6th. Number eight, September 7th. So I was number eight in the lottery. So I knew that no matter how far, they, they got to about 160 that I was going to get drafted. So then I had to figure out how to avoid that. So and how, how did you avoid it? I decided to join the Peace Corps, which was a two-year voluntary service. And there was a deferment for people that were doing things that were vital to the national interest, like being a graduate student, like being a teacher, like being a Peace Corps volunteer. But then they did away with those deferments just before I graduated. So I couldn't go to graduate school and get a deferment. I wrote, I got admitted to graduate school. I said, will you write a letter to my draft board. Well, we'll write a letter, but they, it's, they, they could still draft you. And so I said, well, if I go to Canada, then they can't draft me. There was no uh, extradition treaty. So a lot of Americans went to Canada. It really helped Canada out at the mm -hmm. time. I went through Canada. I, I met a lot of them. I went to the Toronto Anti-Draft Program to find out what so it So you did take. go to Canada? I drove through there when I graduated from college, but I ended up uh, flunking my physical. Hmm. And so I got a one Y, and then I, and I had joined the Peace Corps, and so I... Well, how much for you was, I don't want to go to war, and how much was it, we shouldn't be fighting this war, and I'm not going to be part of it? It was mainly, I don't want to kill. I could have joined the Navy, sat in Monterey, California, and forecast the weather, because I was a meteorologist. And I thought that was the same as pulling the trigger. I didn't want to participate in it at all. So your involvement in science and meteorology and climate... In, begins in college. So how does this start to become your passion? Well, meteorology is a pretty small group of people doing it. It's like this fancy, it's really nice club and you get to know everybody in the club. And you're pretty special if you're a meteorologist. You can tell the future. Most people can't tell the future. When I re, I, I'm the director of the undergraduate program of meteorology at Rutgers now. You can tell the future if you become a meteorologist. And if you become a climatologist, you can change the future. Because you can tell the world, this is, the path, this is what's going to happen if we behave this way. This is what's going to happen if we, for example, put a lot more greenhouse gases in that. And that helps society inform them to make decisions. And, and the, the issue of human-caused climate change, it goes right back into the 70s, if not before. When, when is the first research that, that makes this connection? Arrhenius did research in the late 19th century and calculated that if we double the CO2 that the climate will warm by a few degrees. So it's, it's really old research. Uh, in 1969, there was work by a Russian scientist, Badika, and an American one, uh, Bill Sellers, and they, at the same time, not knowing it, published almost the identical paper showing what would happen if we, if, if, if how sensitive the climate system was to changing amount of energy. So we weren't sure then how much the climate would change. We knew that humans put in these gases which trap the energy, mainly carbon dioxide, but we also put in particles. We put in pollution which reflects sunlight and cause cooling. So there's a fight between the warming and the cooling. And at the time when I was a graduate student, we didn't understand 
have a good feeling for which was the stronger thing. Okay, in the next segment of the interview, we'll kind of trace okay. the evolution of your thinking yeah. and what persuaded you that this was the evidence that humans okay. do cause climate change. So please join us for the next segment of our interview on Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.